Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. With me, as always, is that wily Greek, Jeff Goad. Let's burn down Carthage. There we go. Insulted to the ground. Uh, and this week, we're very excited to have with us a longtime friend of the show, Rob Poynton, master of all he surveys at Innsmouth Gold, which include uh, an empire of dark delights, including the Innsmouth Literary Festival, a new YouTube gaming channel called Dragon's Tooth, uh, Dragon's Teeth, and two podcasts, the Innsmouth Book Club, and Strange Shadows, and I'm sure there are sundry other dark delights that will soon appear there. So, Rob. <laughs> Hi, chaps. How are you doing? Nice to be here. Hey, so, Rob. Rob. <laughs> right. You know, we've known you for uh, quite a bit now, but tell us a little bit, tell the listeners a little bit about you, uh, maybe first about how you got into speculative fiction, and then maybe how you uh, became a gamer. I started reading at a young age. I think my mum and dad taught me to read before I went to school. And our house was always full of books and music, so I kind of grew up with with that. And I was always into, I guess, what you'd call action sort of stories as a kid. I remember reading things like Treasure Island quite young. Uh, and there was quite a lot of fantasy. We're talking sort of late 60s, so The Hobbit was very big. There was um, a series, it's overlooked a little bit, I feel now, called, uh, well, the first one was The Weird Stone of Brisingerman by a guy called Alan Garner, which is like classic British young adult fantasy, I'd guess you'd call it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, a little later on, got into Lord of the Rings. And I think it must have been sort of mid-70s. I remember my dad brought home one of the Conan books with the iconic Frank Frazetta covers. So that then switched me into Sword and Sorcery, Michael Moorcock, Fritz Leiber, et cetera, et cetera. Were your... Um was your dad into that stuff or was it just something he randomly had picked up thinking like, oh, Rob will like this? No, no, he was into that. I had to borrow them oh, okay. off of him. And, he, and in fact, he oh, still likes that. Yeah, I send him stuff okay. regularly now. He's, he still likes all that kind of oh, thing. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. And uh, was gaming a natural extension of this or was this, you know, obviously Games Workshop must have come around when you were like in, in your early teens or something like that. Um, yeah, well, it started at school. We had a history teacher who started a, uh, a sort of war games group. And initially, it was Gladiatorial Combat, which was a game played in a biscuit tin with a grid drawn <laughs> on the bottom and some really old minifigs figures. And that sort of prompted a few of us to set a wargaming club up, which I, I notice is still going today, actually, down oh, in cool. uh, East London. So, yeah, and it was tabletop wargaming, which was, I guess, sort of Second World War stuff, but then Lord of the Rings as well. And then the late 70s, Dungeons and Dragons hit. And then into Call of Cthulhu and, and everything else from there, really. And specifically, I mean, since you're known so much for doing all this uh, weird, having a weird, uh, weird fiction uh, emphasis, what sort of drew you in that direction in addition to your love of the sort of more generic fantasy and sword and sorcery? I think it was initially, I got into a few Conan books. I guess they were the old, was it the Lancer paperbacks at that time? And I think on the back there was a quote by H.P. Lovecraft, which is quite an unusual name, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I found a book of his in the local library. I think it was The Outsider and Other Tales. So that really opened me up to weird fiction. And then you realise, of course, that a lot of sword and sorcery has a strong weird fiction element in it, um, a, lot, a, a big Lovecraftian element in a lot of cases. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that that took me into I guess more the horror field, and extending out from weird fiction, reading things like Anne Rice. Uh, we, we had a slew of books in the seventies that I don't know if you had over there called things like the rats, the bats, the giant cats, <laughs> you know, James Herbert, all that real kind of pulpy uh, yeah, sure. horror stuff. That that was all uh, very big at the time. I think a few of those well. made over into, and you can see them in um, with the Grady Hendrix book, uh, paperback, paperback, uh, paperback <laughs> horrors or whatever. So, uh, definitely, I think a few of those. That was sort of the golden age of paperback horror. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. That's a great title, though. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm currently rewatching Dark Shadows, and that feels very Dark Shadows. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I'm to, I'm going to attempt to do the uh, 31 days of horror, uh, you know, viewing challenge this year. Although I never do more than like 15, 15 <laughs> things out of the, you know, it's just, it's just not enough it's time. My, my partner and I, it's our sixth annual and um, we just have our, in, in each year we come up with um, a list of movies we're going to watch each day. And he picks the ones for the odd days and I pick the ones for the even days. And then on Halloween day, we watch something from the Halloween franchise. Oh, uh, yes. We'll, we'll definitely be lining something up for Halloween. I, I don't know what yet, yeah. but uh, we've already got Halloween decorations up. It's bigger than Christmas in our house. So. There you go. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I'm going to cheat and say something like, you know, an episode of what we do in the shadows will count as something, uh, you know, as a proper viewing for for, oh, yeah. for, for 31 days. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Rob, uh, amongst your uh, many readings there, uh, what are some things that you might recommend for sort of gaming, um, inspiration for our listeners? Well, I was thinking about this and I thought actually that earlier book I mentioned or that series, the Alan Garner series, which, um, I guess today it would be called YA, but it's very interesting and it's very much set in the English countryside or the countryside around Cheshire. And it's one of those books where the landscape is as much a character as anything else. Um, so I, I'd be interested to see an RPG that incorporates a lot of those sort of folklore elements alongside the conventional uh, fighting, well, whatever it is, or questing. Yeah, there's definitely been a sort of very, uh, just in the general culture, a real folk horror revival. And I think that we're sort of ripe for a sort of folk horror, maybe not overtly Cthuloid, but sort of full car RPG. I think that would be uh, gaming. That would be fun. Yeah. Well, there's one uh, that's kind of exploding right now. What is it? The 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 old gods of Appalachia or something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah, that, no, that's that, a, that podcast that's a is big huge. One. Yeah. Yeah. And Although I, I guess I, it's kind of pretty. Sorry. Go ahead. I did, that's American full core. Yeah, yeah. I, I did see a Kickstarter. I don't know if it actually came out. Someone was doing like a an Mr. James based RPG, which sounds very interesting. So the design mechanism did one. Um, so I don't know if that was, you know, I don't know if they're expanding on that, but yes, I remember them doing something about, um, MR James. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and I was just reading, I like a lot of those, um, British sort of the Christmas ghost stories, uh, books, uh-huh. you know, MR yeah. James again. Um, I just read the book, the box of delights earlier in the year, right? which was, which was marvelous. And there was another series I read again. That's again, it was sort of proto YA with kids. Um, you know, encountering the the arcane and ancient horrors. I'm trying to remember if I read it at the end of last year or the beginning of this year, but I'll think of it. You know, I, I guess that's an show. age you get into that sort of stuff, isn't it? Every, everyone we speak to on our podcast, we interview, we say, "When did you get into Lovecraft?" And it always seems to be about twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is mm-hmm. it something about hitting that age and discovering this spooky stuff? Oh, I remember it is the giant under the snow. John Gordon. Have you read that one? Oh no, no, it's a good title yeah, though. Yeah. I like the yeah, sound of yeah, that. Yeah, that one's terrific too. Yeah, that's definitely another 
right at the end of last year. That's why I didn't show up on my list. But yeah, so there's a ton of books like that. And I remember there was a lot of 70s uh Sort of BBC, yeah, Children of the Stones. Oh, all the kind of stuff like yes, movies. the stone tapes. Yeah, I grew up with yeah. all that stuff. Um, yeah, they, they they call it, there's a name for it over here. There's a, a, a sort of society that looks at all that stuff. Um, and we had these public information films that were things like, don't go near lakes, you might drown. And they'd actually have the Grim Reaper standing on the shore. They were terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, there is a uh, Twitter feed, right, that just uh, – Links to all those old, uh, I guess what they call PIFs. Uh, yeah, I yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very good feed. It's they're very ominous, and it's like, and it's like Donald Pleasance narr- narrates yeah. some of them. It's like, <laughs> it is, wow. it is, yeah. There, there was a huge burst of interest in the occult and all that kind of thing at that time as well. It all seemed to tie in together. No wonder we turned out the way we did. It's my excuse. <laughs> when I was in high school, I worked at a video production company, and I was somehow put in charge of making some public service announcements for like drunk driving so like i so like i would have my friends star in these like ridiculous um psas that we would film and they would make it on television but now i'm really regretting that we didn't have the grim reaper in any of them i feel like that would have been a, a really great touch that really just would have been chef's kiss on that i, I hear he works quite cheap so you know <laughs> he's very democratic works comes and you know, he'll, he'll just meet you where you're at <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of uh, death and despair, uh, this week we're, <laughs> we're reading uh, Gustave Flaubert's Salambo. Uh, so before we start discussing it, do we have any uh, high-gaxian word candidates amongst them? I mean, there's so many words in this book that uh, might fit the bill. I certainly do. All right, let's see um, one. I've, I've got, got yeah. um, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, pusillanimous. That's definitely one I would have picked too, yes. Yes, Um I guess I should have looked up the pronunciation beforehand. Um, but I actually, but I listened to the audiobook, so you'd think I would know. Um, pusillanimous, right? Yep. Um, and I found three places where it's mentioned. There's one spot where somebody says, because you are cowardly, greedy, ungrateful, pusillanimous, and mad. And then the next one is, first he rejected those engaged in sedentary occupations, and then those who are big-bellied or had a pusillanimous look. And then finally, we have owing to the enthusiasm of some of the and the pusillanimity of the rest, an army of 5,000 men was ready before the interval prescribed had elapsed. And pusillanimous means a lack of courage or determination. Right. right. What I love even more is the etymology of the word because it animus is soul or mind and pusil, pusil, uh, whatever, you know, the root is small. So small minded, small ah, soul. Oh, small soul. That's cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. You you have a small soul, sir. <laughs> <laughs> good day to you. I say good day. <laughs> How about you, Rob? You have any uh, words uh, that really? I mean, exciting? there was there was a ton of stuff in here. I had to look up, uh, and, and again, I'm going to murder the pronunciation. But the the first one that I noticed was Lictor or Lictor. Uh, he escorted him like a Lictor, which apparently was a, a Roman bodyguard to a magistrate which I, I'd never heard of that before. And then, that was the, the, then there's these huge sort of chapters on the siege and he, he sort of lists all these different, well, it seems like every type of siege equipment available he, he throws in there. And one that stuck out to me was uh, Tolino, again, I don't know if the pronunciation is correct, which is a crane that lifts attackers onto a castle wall, which sounds like a novel way to commit suicide to me, but you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I definitely like pusillanimous. That was would have been my first pick, but I also was a fan of the word uh, safit, which is the the two sort of uh, uh, 
I don't know, sort of semi semi elected leaders of Car- of Carthage, and so you know, and and sort of um, so ha- uh, uh, was it Hanno, and then the uh, uh, and then Hasdrubal, and and it, I liked how they described how. Carthage is not in any what real sense what we would call a republic, but they call themselves a republic. And they're so in fear of anyone taking power that they deliberately set each other at each other's throats, right? And, and every power structure is designed to be as inefficient and as, uh, you know, doggy dog as possible, right? <laughs> Which sort of suffuses this whole book. Um, so with that in mind, um, what did we think of this book? I'll be honest. When you when you sent your email over and suggested it, I was thinking Flaubert because you think Madame Bovary. I, I'm thinking a sort of a, a, a sort of domestic drama type thing or something. I've never read Flaubert, so it did come as a bit of a shock. Um, and the one word that I wrote down was vivid, extremely vivid. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, though, the word I kept going to was ornate. Hmm. Mm. Um, this feels, it's a very ornate book. Um, I did not enjoy reading this. Um, it's kind of the two things I struggle with the most in books are when, um, authors spend too much time describing set pieces rather than characters or, um, action. Um, and long descriptions of um, tactical war movement. <laughs> uh, those are the two things where my eyes are the most likely to glaze over during. And this book is entirely those two things. Uh, but I, I will say, I, I do think that there's a lot of deliciousness in this. I think if you can take one one thousandth of this and infuse it into... Um, actually, I will say, I, I think... If a thousandth of this were infused into a sword and sorcery story, I would love it because I love those really ornate yeah. moments in yeah. a Conan story or in a Gray, uh, um, a Fafford and Gray Mouser story. So some of that was really cool, but it was just way too much of that for my taste. Rob, how about you? What's your well, first impression? It, it's interesting that you mentioned Conan there because at so many points through this, I was thinking Robert E. Howard. It was so Howardian in its script, in its descriptions, in its colours, in its vividness, and um, well, in a way, I always thought of Howard as uh, a historical writer who added sorcery in, and this struck me as sword and sorcery without the sorcery. But there seems to be some dispute about whether Howard read this or not. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith and Lovecraft were big fans. Uh, and oh, cert- I, I had no doubt that Smith certainly, yeah, yeah, yeah. But apparently, there's no mention in in Howard's letters to Lovecraft or Smith that he ever read it. And some people are saying, well, if he had have read it, he surely would have mentioned it. So the the jury's out on that a bit. But it did strike me as very Howardian in mm-hmm. in some senses. Yeah, I was not. Um, I came at this, I must have read, I think my first time I heard of this book, I think, do you remember the Sumerian blog, which is a oh, very yeah. good, uh, it's a little on the right wing side of Howard fandom, but <laughs> it had a lot of good, um, it was one of the first blogs to really go back and look at the, the roots of Howard, you know, stripping away the, the, the campisms and what have you. But I can't find the entry anymore, but I remember them mentioning it was savage. I'm like, okay, savage. And then I actually read the book it's like wow this is really savage this book is <laughs> incredibly yeah. savage descriptions of violence and that are are yeah. not not what you expect from sort of i mean maybe it's because flaubert's french he's not sort of self-censoring the way the victorian writer would um 
And right. he was he was a fan of the Saad as well, so I think there's probably an influence right. from there, perhaps. The Saad yeah. and and that sort of French whole French decadent movement that's going on at the time. Yeah. Um, so I kind of agree with you, Jeff, in the sense that this book doesn't have. Um, if you are not prepared, then you're not going to get momentum going through this book. But if you sort of let yourself sink into it the way that you would with like a, a longer Clark Ashton Smith story or something like that, it sort of envelops you with this sort of completely alien world that is our world, you know? <laughs> you know yeah, I, I don't know I, if you... I, I did think it got very listy in places. Mm-hmm. You know, there seemed to be things like describing a pomegranate, an apple, an orange, some bananas, a bowl of fruit. Yeah. And, and I think like Jeff says, very little... I can't really remember anything about the characters much, even Salambo herself. None of the characters really leapt off the page. Uh, it was almost like reading a history book in yeah. some in some way. Yeah, I mean, we had like Spendius and Matho, but like even those two characters, like I, I don't still have like a really super strong impression of either of them either, even though we spent quite a bit of time right. with them. I have not read, uh, just like Rob, I have not read uh, Flaubert, although I understand that Madame Bovary is a re- very much a I character study. So I wonder if this is like a, a very deliberate attempt to create a completely different affect and like create this sort of um, like, you know, the whole past is another country thing. And like, we can't understand people in any, uh, in any, we can only see their actions. We can't understand them in any sort of meaningful way without sort of being brought up in that, like culture and that society. Um, or it yeah. could just be, he was just so swept up in like, oh, I want to tell this history that I've read and this, you know, see the sights and sounds. I don't know, you know. Because he did really get into it. Apparently yeah. he, he read over a hundred books as research. He, he went to Tunisia, traveled to Tunisia. So he really seemed to throw himself into it. Um, and part of you thinks, was it like a, a sort of shock value book? Because uh, I, well, I think Madame Bovary attracted a lot of uh, criticism at the time and controversy. Uh, and then this sold very well off of the back of that controversy. So was this even more controversial? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's funny. They, they don't mention whether it was controversial and that. It, and you would think because given the violence and the, the sort of uh, uh, decadence and all that, but it, it seemed to have created this whole revival of uh, sort of this, or, you know, uh, sort of an orient. I mean, there was ori- orientalism going on, but this orientalist interest, influ- interest in Rome, Roman and Mediterranean, North Africa, yeah. Uh, that period, um, which is, you know, carried on to this day. Of course, there's that current meme going on. Jeff, have you heard this one about uh, women asking, like, why uh, why men, only, how, how often they think about the Roman Empire? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah, I did hear yeah. about that recently. Right. Yeah, yeah I, didn't understand, like, I didn't understand it, though. Funnily enough, I'm researching Roman Empire at the moment, so <laughs> it was a bit, it did hit home a bit, but I, I didn't really get it. <laughs> <laughs> so... But uh, apparently, it's uh, apparently everybody. Uh, all, all men do. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it seems it seems kind of funny that we're reading it. At this I, time. I, I should point I, out to listeners, I am wearing a toga at the moment, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe this deliberate affect that um, makes this almost um, theatrical or operatic, and I know it was adapted as an opera, uh, a very popular opera uh, afterwards. Um, so, uh, but I, again, I don't know enough about Flaubert to know like what effect, uh, he was going for, uh, you know, this distancing effect was, um, just because he was so much swept up into trying to relate all the details or if this is something he was really going for. Um, a couple of things that really struck out me though, I think there's a lot of great set pieces in here, um, that even with the lists or the overboardness, 
it's for effect. Like when uh, Hasdrubal comes back and he's taking inventory of his of his estate, hmm. right? Right, and it's like, wow, that's a treasure hoard, right? Like, every, yeah. it's not it's not just a thousand pieces of gold. It's like different gold from different places, spices, herbs, you know, how it's concealed, yeah. how it's made into you're not coins. It's made into these giant metal, uh, you know, sort of amphora shapes so that they'd be harder to loot. Um, and on and on and on. I said, this is this is just to emphasize that a this rich that he is despite being sort of the not i wouldn't even say the hero but you know the the hero at least at carthage he is also as much part of that whole system as anybody else yeah and and that this this horde is just like so obscene it's almost impossible to wrap your mind around yeah (laughs) right yeah and I, i think as well the thing for me was despite the name of the book Salambo, I would say she's it's not an incidental character. She's one of the main three or four characters, I guess. But I was expecting some kind of um, like Helen of Troy kind of story at the center of this, a big sort of love story or thwarted romance. But that seemed quite downplayed as well. They they have a meeting and there's a, there's a bit of there's a bit of eyelash fluttering going on or something like that, and and that's pretty much it, you know. I don't know. Yeah. She, she shows up and she's gorgeous and Matho is just immediately hard. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's, that's the premise of the story essentially. Right. Mm. To me, the most interesting dynamic was between her. Well, the interesting dynamic is Matho and Spendius, but the interesting dynamic regarding mm-hmm. Salambo is her and Shaharabin. Is that right? The eunuch priest. Oh, the priest. Who yeah. Is, yeah. Right. Mm. Who is like, almost discovering the heliocentric world view of the world, right? He's like, he's decided the world's a globe. Like there's a whole thing about all his learning and, um, but that he's sort of able to relate to her, not out of desire because he is a eunuch, but then he's also mad because he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah. and it's all this up. And then he deliberately sends her into danger, um, you know, and, and thinks that she's not his intellectual equal. And there's all these other things that are going on there that, that are uh, very, very twisted up. And pretty much every character in this book is pretty twisted in their own way. Although I think Spendius is pretty fa- Spendius is pretty sure. fascinating. Um, it's kind of but, like uh, a little bit like Gormenghast in, in one sense, isn't it? But with, mm-hmm. with extra yeah. gore and violence. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, exactly. I was going to ask you guys, what, what did you make of the Python? Because we have that on the, uh, on the cover of the book, which is a, I thought mm-hmm. this was like maybe an Adam and Eve type picture, but that is actually a, a painting from the the book. And this python seems to get mentioned quite a lot, and then it just sort of dies, and and that's it. I wasn't quite sure was this symbolic of something, or or what what was that about? Hmm. Uh, I have an idea. But go ahead, Jeff. Is this the where she's dancing? Well, she's dancing, and she keeps the python, and it gets ill, and then it comes back, and you know, regain. And that's this holy python that the the uh, the yeah. Carthaginians also think it's because it comes from underground. It relates to their underground gods and stuff like that. Um, I mean, and I understand that yeah. these words were translated, but I, I I know that in my translation, a word that they kept using to describe the snake was uh, the snake was erect. <laughs> so, I mean, I think um, many of the purposes of the of the snake character, if that's what we want to say, I think are you know a, um, a stand-in for the phallus. But um, I don't know. I don't have a lot of strong insight otherwise. I mean, I think there's that. Um, I think it's. Uh, and there's no doubt, and, and they mention other phalluses that are, you know, actual, literal, as opposed to purely symbolic phalluses, you know, uh, you know, stone phalluses and stuff. 
Um, but I, I recall. Oh, and, and did, they also had like vulva. They also had like, they had like baked a bunch of breads. Into That's the right. Shape of yeah. Vulvas <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's nothing not shying away from any of that. Um, in fact, in one early passage, they mentioned the mercenaries and I was like, do they mean limbs or do they mean actually like their dongs? Because their, 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 their members were visible through their ragged, like, you know, loincloths. Like <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh Yeah. And there was also pretty frank discussions of um, of gay activity amongst the soldiers as well. Like they're they're dying while there was out there, there was a great line this. on that that, I, that that did stand out to me was um, they give each other wifely favors. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. was a great <laughs> yes, wifely favors. Yes, yes. <laughs> also, one I have here is sometimes two men, all covered with blood, would stop, fall into each other's arms, and die with mutual kisses. Go. I mean, that must have been quite outrageous for the time, surely. Yeah, I yeah, would imagine yeah, I so. so. Um, well, again, France, maybe they were a little bit more, uh, you know, I mean, uh, we, you can have all these stereotypes about the French, but maybe they are a little bit more ooh-la-la. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, well, which I guess uh, we for, I forgot to ask, which is, it uh, looks like you were reading a, the Penguin edition there. Uh, which which uh, version were you working with, Jeff, in terms of... Um, Oh yeah, great question. So I did. I just I didn't read anything. I just did the aud- audible audiobook, um, and I don't really know which translation the audiobook is using. It was a pretty um, pretty low quality recording, and there's not a lot of info about it. Um, I know when it was done, they mentioned it was. They gave me the year, and it was in the '90s. But I I don't have a lot of mm-hmm. info. Yeah, I'm also reading a Penguin uh, Classics edition. It's an ebook. I'm trying to find out who the translator is. It was relatively recent. It wasn't. It wasn't one of the ones that was date. You know, around the time it actually came out. So it was a, a more modern translation. I've, I've so it down less. as a Doctor Krausheimer, or at least that was the. the that, sounds, that sounds right. Yeah, I think yeah. it was 1977, yeah. and I think this is yeah. a 1987 edition. Yeah, right. That, that sounds right. Oh yeah, I've got mine here. It's um, narrated by Fred Williams. It's 1999 Blackstone audio. The audio quality is mm-hmm. not great, but it doesn't say which um, translation mm-hmm. this is. Um, and in fact, that was the one thing that was interesting because Wikipedia generally lists, lists the number of English translations, and they just said Eleanor Marks, which is the first English translation, and then they just said that their spellings were from um, a, a another more recent translation, but didn't say which one it was. Um, or they say which one it was, but not how recent. Um, but back to your comment about the snake, it is to me interesting because when she comes back, her affect has changed quite a bit and she doesn't seem to care as much about stuff. And she has knowledge now that, um, you know, she sees that her father is sort of somehow both grateful and disappointed in her, you know, that she's brought back and, and people, she's not given acclamation as a potential savior of Carthage, right? So she has knowledge now that, and the snake dies, right? And so she doesn't need the snake anymore. She doesn't need that knowledge anymore. She has her own knowledge now. That's to me what. All oh, right. Yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. the snake is often often the symbol of knowledge in a lot of sort of Near Eastern religions, also, or a bringer of knowledge, right? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I, I was kind of thinking of it as we got into it. Is this is some sort of Eve reference? But that never really worked out. And then even the death of the snake was very graphic with its. It's head full of worms and all that sort of stuff, wasn't yeah, it? That was yeah, like a little yeah. jump scare almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nothing dies nicely in this book. That's sure. <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> Whether it's a dog, a horse, the oh, elephants. Not the, the, the elephants, elephants not the elephants. Yeah. It's so horrible. Yeah. Oh, if if you like yeah. elephants, don't read this book. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Or what about the lot the, the, the crucified oh, lions? Yes. The whole road of yes. crucified lions, right, right. 
Yeah, you know you're some, in for something different. Yeah, I mean, it begins at the very beginning with the banquet, right? When don't they burn down some trees to get at the monkeys at the banquet or something like that? Yeah, and then they're, they're <laughs> yeah. sacrificing children, aren't they, at one yeah. point to Moloch yeah. and, and everything. Yeah. It's, oh, it's yeah, pretty, yeah. it's grim stuff. Yeah. There's that website, Does the Dog Die, where you can, oh. I think it's doesthedogdie.com, where you can, if, if you're somebody who doesn't want to watch a movie where dogs die, you can go and find out so you know if this is a movie to avoid or not. Right. But it has now turned into a bunch of other things, so you can just kind of find out about all kinds of things that people would be triggered or bothered by. Um, certainly, if they did that for books, this book would be flagged in all kinds of different directions. Pretty much, and, uh, yeah. Pretty I thought, much. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. There is a film of this. I think it's a French-language film. And it's from that sort of 1960s epic era from the looks of it. And I can't imagine that they put 80% of the, the book in the film. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> Wasn't there also like a 1910s, like silent epic? Uh, looks like, yeah, 1914, uh, 15, 1925 as well. I don't know how many, sh- how many of them are based on the book or more on the opera itself. Mm. Um, unfinished opera, I should say. Rachmaninoff. Three operas have been actually attempted. Wow. Uh, I guess that's more. Which more, is prob- so. it's probably what made me think of the classic love story thing, because that's your, yeah. your tragic yeah. opera story right yeah. there. Yeah. No, actually, I, I take it back. Six operas have been attempted. Six? Two, two have been wow. unfinished. <laughs> so this must have so, been a, a, a very popular work in its day then, to, to spawn yeah, that many yeah. operas. Right. And actually, one little scene in there is the scene in... Uh, Citizen Kane here, it says on Wikipedia, when uh, Charles Foster Kane's wife is singing, she sings the title role of Salambo in a fictitious opera, a fictitious version of the Salambo <laughs> opera <laughs> with Bernard Herrmann doing the score. So, <laughs> so there's your uh, little, uh, uh, Bernard Herrmann too, there's your little fantasy and horror connection there too. So, nice, <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, so wow. Um, yeah, definitely, without a doubt, I'm going to see a huge influence on, on Clark Ashton Smith, I would say. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. This, this, this goes without saying. This would fit in right with any of the, the Hyperborea or actually more even the Zothique stories in some ways, I think, in my, in my mind. Oh, and I think I read that Fritz Leiber was a big fan as well. So you can think Farford and the Grey Mouser and, and that whole world has a little mm-hmm. bit of that. What, what's the name of the city they, they live in? No, uh, Lankmar. Lankmar. Lankmar, of yeah. course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has a little bit of that. I always thought of it as Byzantine, you know, but I could yeah. see this as, as that as well. Right. I mean, well, you definitely have a- supposed to be Alexandria. Ah, right. There you go. I mean, you definitely have a little bit of that dynamic between Spendius and, and Matho, right? Because Spendius is the wily, thiefy type, and, and Matho is, you know, sort of the more morose barbarian, although he doesn't have any humor the way that, you know, uh, uh, Fafford does. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's, there's that proto-dynamic, and Spendius definitely is thiefy. He's got all the things going on, right? He's a former slave. He's a slave owner himself. He's been a pimp. He's, been, <laughs> you know, he's deliberately mistranslating so that they, you know, or making sure that people aren't there to like deliberately encourage miscommunication. I love that scene when Hanno first comes and is trying to like, oh, we'll pay you, but we can't pay you this because of this, this, and this, you know, and like no, and they're describing how none of the none of the mercenaries understand him. The Gauls don't understand him. This group doesn't understand him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I thought I thought that there's not much humor in it as such, and I don't yeah. know if this is intentional, but I think it's Spendius when they're all starving. At one point, he finds some plants that he can eat, and he tells everyone else, "Oh, de- deadly poison! Those you don't want to eat those." And they start <laughs> stuffing his face with them. That that was quite amusing. Yeah, yeah. and and it's he's an interesting balance between sort of 
attempt a, a occasional cowardice, but also quite brave. Like when he goes alone up into the aqueduct and and, and you know sabotages the aqueduct to to cut off the water supply to the Carthaginians, and that's quite enormously brave on his part, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Um, he's the, I think the closest to sort of a, a modern character that we might be able to understand in, in, in you know, yeah. modern terms out of the characters in the fiction, um, sort of an Iago-esque figure in some ways too. Yeah. Yeah. So Jeff, uh, given that you didn't like the book, but what are the things that you would, uh, I guess we're almost on the back half of the podcast and what are some of the things that you might want to like pull out, uh, for, gaming uh to reshaping other fiction what are things that you really did, did catch your eye well um you know when rob was describing this as being very list like it makes me think that like hey if you're a uh, ben milton type and you're currently you know working on your draft for nave second edition and you're looking for inspiration for your um for your many 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 random tables of things you find at the feast table and things you, and um, you know, what, whatever kind of random tables your heart desires filling up, this is a great resource to go and, um, and do that with. And you don't even need to buy the book. It's on project Gutenberg mm-hmm. and you can just do like a control F and put in a word like opal or antelope or tiara <laughs> and suddenly you'll be in the middle of a giant block of text that's like talking about all these wild things that you can find in this particular place. So I think that's where this this book really soars as a source of inspiration for gaming is in coming up with those like set pieces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's also sort of proto grimdark too this book in some ways too amongst uh, amongst all the other things too that you know. Um but yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, Rob, if you have some ideas, I'll, I'll harken back to the treasure hoard in a minute. But Rob, what's, what are some of the ideas that you think of or well, things that makes you this? One, one thing that struck me, because this, this siege takes place over three years, which I guess is fairly historically accurate, at least in, in some cases, was, well, there's the basis for a campaign. Uh, and a siege... If, if anyone wants to read up on a historical siege that has a lot of those elements in, then read about the siege of Malta in mm-hmm. oh, 15 something. I should have, I should have prepped the date, shouldn't I? But, uh, which is a, a quite an incredible story. In fact, I, I nicked it as the basis for one of my sword and sorcery books. But uh, again, within that mix, as with this, you've got all these different factions. You've got the priests on each side. You've got the Royal family. You've got spies. You've got intrigue. You've got mass battles. You know, you can uh, really fit a lot of stuff in. I think you'd have a, an entire campaign there for whatever system you wanted to use. I was really struck by the fact that this is relatively, I mean, the Carthaginians were, you know, a world power for values of that time period, but it's still relatively contained. If we look at North Africa, yes, it's huge, but the Bay of Tunis or the, you know, where Carthage and the various things, it's really within, I don't know, 50, 100 miles. Um, but there's so many cultures interacting here. You know, there's the Gauls, the Greeks come, and, and they're aware of all these other cultures, right? Um, and that, um, you know, you go 50 miles inland and, you know, there's the mountains. And then on the other side of that are these other, you know, all these other cultures and, and, and mater- different sort of material lifestyles um, in terms of how people live and stuff like that. So I think it's, interesting to be able to set a campaign in a place that is sort of at the nexus and meeting point 
of a bunch of different cultures. If you're doing a traditional fantasy game and even a, a space faring game, you could do that where you could say, okay, this is like the nexus of a bunch of, I don't know, jump lines. And this is like, you know, where you go off to these different areas instead of setting sort of for a default, you know, high fantasy, uh, you know, fake medieval campaign. I think it's much more interesting. I w- I'm much more interested in sort of this bronze sword and sandal. This could make a good sort of rune quest. I guess, I guess that's why they said it in Dragon Pass, right? The default rune is like where cultures collide and meet, mm. right? Um, and and that's I'm, something you frequently talk about. And I think that points to the Howard-esque uh, influence or the influence on Howard if there was one because, of course, he mixed all those cultures together. And while we might say there's some broad stereotypes involved, I, I don't get any sense of one race is elevated above another in this. Uh, they can all be equally horrible. <laughs> you know, they all have yeah. their own characteristics, perhaps. I, I was a bit where the ghouls take their shirts off to show their pal bodies and their wounds yeah. to scare the enemy, that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> but that right. was sort of fun, yeah. Right. Typically, also funny, typically, now you mentioned it, it's a typically horrible moment when they talk about how the Northerners decompose differently than the people from Africa, right? Because the, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. the Northerners get bloat. And right, the Africans sort of dry out and mummify. <laughs> <laughs> Even in death, there's these characteristics or something. Yeah, right. um, I also think there's something that the book does poorly that I think we can learn from um, when it comes to our world and game design, which is that, um, I mean, as frequently when we're, when we're reading this stuff, we're just encountering racism in these texts left and right. And one of the things that I find in this is frequently they'll list off a bunch of nations and then throw, I'll give you an example. Men of all nations were there, Ligurians, uh, Lus- Lusitanians, Balerians, Negroes, and fugitives from Rome. Yeah. Okay. First off, yeah. Negro yeah. is not a nation. Yes. And then we go on and says, and here's another section here. The Greeks range their tents of skin in parallel lines. The Iberians placed their canvas pavilions in a circle. The Gauls made themselves huts of plank. The Libyans cabins of dry stone, while the Negroes with their nails hollowed out trenches in the sand to sleep in. So again, nation, 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 nation. Negroes. Christ. And in yeah. that second in that second example, we're also showing the other people that are doing reasonable things, and then the Negroes are digging holes in the sand with their nails. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're also showing that they're like bestial and not even really human. But aside from those like super racist depictions, it, it also gets me thinking about how frequently when we're doing world design, we think about cultures in terms of the humans. So in your fantasy world, the humans are here's the um, the the Lustians and here's the Bartharians or whatever. But then you also just think, oh, and there's the elves and there's the dwarves and there's the halflings. Like we don't give them cultures. They're just they're just a different race other than humans. We only give the humans cultures. Yeah, yeah. And I think that reading this was also getting me to kind of think about how um Clearly, Flaubert only thinks of the 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 um, the non-black people as having cultures, and clearly, a lot of people who are designing um, um, fantasy campaigns just think of the humans as having cultures, and then just assume that all elves are a uniculture in the same way that Flaubert is deciding that all "quote unquote" Negroes are a uniculture. And I think that that's something that we can learn from not only as humans to like you know let's let's not you know let's I mean we we are clearly you know, less racist than we were in the 1850s. But, um, but in our, in our game design, I also think 
in some ways, we're still kind of trapped in some of those styles of thinking that I think it's helpful for us to try to get out of. I, I think you're very right on that. And I, I should have mentioned that with the Negroes because it is they're at the top of Africa, this huge, vast continent that is just subsumed to that's Negroes, right? Uh, you know, um, yeah. So that is a thing. I believe there was one moment where I heard I heard somebody referred to as an Ethiopian, and I was like, "Whoa, right, look, right, right. Flaubert acknowledged that there is there that are, there is there a culture in Africa." Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. but also yeah, I mean, with, this whole. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say with the fantasy thing, those uh, hobbits, dwarves, elves do have cultures, but the hobbits, uh, English rustics, the dwarves are Vikings, and the elves are. I'm, I'm not sure exactly, but <laughs> yes. Know. But no matter where in your continent they are, they're those people. They're always those things. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. We don't we don't talk about how different the the dwarves of the north are from the dwarves of the south. Sure. I mean, sometimes we do. I'm not going to say that there's no fantasy campaigns campaigns that do that. There are some that some that do, but I think it's really common for fantasy campaigns not to do that. Right. Yeah. If they're doing it, it's really usually because they want to do a splat book and give like, you know, the gray dwarves have these extra power as opposed to the red dwarves yeah. or, or, you know. Um, Here are the sun elves and the moon elves and the, yeah. I mean, obviously, for many reasons, it's a proxy for sort of uh, ethnocentrism, but also it's really hard to imagine a truly non-human culture, right? Um, yeah. There is that. And, yeah. and so it takes a great act of imagination to do that. So uh, there is something to be said for having a fantasy game that is, you know, all human centric, like literally humans. Like there are no uh, playable, intelligent uh, uh, other species or, or ancestries or whatever what you're going to do. But yes, if you are going to approach it, and it's, 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 a, it's a discussion that's in the air, Jeff. It's no doubt, as we say, and a lot of the younger gamers are much more thoughtful about it than maybe we might've been cause we just kind of assume it with the background. It's like, yeah. Um, you know, are we going to, you know, if you're going to have a halfling and what does it mean to be a halfling, you know, or do they live in proximity with humans? Are they subservient to humans? Are they, you know, what is it? You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Which is why whenever I play a halfling, I always insist on being referred to as a hobbit because my halflings always say, I'm not half of anything. Right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um yeah and strangely yeah some of my, my most recent campaigns i mean there's i'm playing a yun game which has other races but almost everyone's played a human there's a couple crab crabs but nobody's played a slug or anything else like super exotic um it's really just been humans but but with distinct cultures which is interesting and people are sort of i gave them like very broad sketches uh because not like completely defined the way that RuneQuest is very specific right i think RuneQuest is incredible act of creation and imagination but also is equally hard to inhabit because you know i have to like find this value in this culture that is not a modern 21st century you know <laughs> liberal democratic value that's fine but immerse myself in that but then there's so much lore built up over the years it doesn't leave you a lot of room to flex uh, right although right. you know or at least you can feel that way. Although people who are real proponents of that system will say, "No, no, your your Glorantha is your Glorantha," but you know, <laughs> you know, I don't I don't really think that's the case necessarily. Or it's not easy to inhabit it that way. Um, <laughs> that's what I have a feeling with a lot of licensed properties, right? Like it's exciting to play like a Star Wars game, maybe, but after a while, like, yeah, this is Star Wars. I don't feel like everything I'm doing is just fanfic for, 
you know, whatever it can be invalidated. By. It, it, exactly. Yeah. We, we were talking about like middle earth role playing just the other day yeah. about the old uh, set that came out. Was it the eighties? I can't remember the, the people. Yeah, who the Iron Crown Enterprise. That's yeah. the one. I mean, yeah. you, you've got to have a, a sort of a degree in Tolkien to, to get into that stuff. You know, it's um, yeah. so detailed uh, and you have to have so much knowledge. I much prefer games where, the players don't really know anything about the world they're coming out into. I think that gives you much more scope. I also like it when the GM doesn't know too much either. And oh, you yeah. I'll just kind of figure yeah. it all out together as you go. Yeah. Um, one thing I like to use is I frequently like to use the old Judges Guild um, uh, wilderness, um, uh, Wilderlands maps um, just so that I have like the names and locations of places. But like, other than that, I'm we're completely figuring out what this world is and redoing every, every time I'm setting a new campaign in that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, you know that this over here is the greatest city in the known world, the city-state of the Invincible Overlord, but none of you have ever been there. So, you know, until you get there, you won't know what it's like, right? And that kind of stuff like that. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And the various other. Um, whereas, like, for example, I think, like, Greyhawk is much too filled in with sort of, again, Gygax's sort of, Middle American ideas of what uh, sort of a medieval, <laughs> Con, <laughs> medieval, cod medieval, cod medieval sort of thing, yeah, cod medieval, right? And um, you know, and then over here is the uh, the cod, uh, cod, Ara- you know, Arabian Empire, you know, Arabian mm. slash slash Turkic slash something. They're they're all horse nomads. So they're over there, you know. It's, <laughs> um, but um, no, I did like. I, I think uh, Jeff, you're right that there's a lot of you know, um, Flaubert's and mid 19th century Western European assumptions baked into it. But I still think the, it does still show that the, this is not a unitary idea of like Europe or Africa, you know, here are the Lusitanians, which is Portuguese or modern day Portugal, here are the Gauls, you know, modern day, but they're not, it's not like, Oh, the Gauls are the French, right? Cause they're not, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, you know, the only ones who may be recognizable to sort of modern day might be the Greeks. And even the Greeks there are like these rough and tumble Greek mercenaries. They're not like the uh, philosophers from, you know, Athens and stuff like that, right? So it is pretty successful in that regard in dropping you into a very alien world, I think, in my mind. Um, with, with like I said, a few of the sort of blind spots which are not hard to overlook in, in our day and age. Yeah. Uh, what, I mean, this is... Again, we're talking about it's fantasy, but it really is a, ho- a horror novel in many ways, or at least from our standpoint. <laughs> is there are there horror tropes that you could take away from this, Rob? As someone who's really you know, oh, um, well, it's like the horrors of war. Yeah, right? I, I, I guess you could put this, uh, you know, the the Western Front in World War One, or you know, pick a war really. And I think yeah. in, in that sense, it at least does that. It describes the horrors of war. Uh, I'm not sure what the what his thinking is behind that, whether that's for shock value or he's trying to get across the horrors of war. Uh, but it certainly doesn't pull any punches. There's no um, noble heroes on their steeds with pennants waving, is there? You know, they're all up to mm-hmm. their knees in crap, and there's entrails, and it, you know, it really is graphic. Um, yeah, which may have been serving a purpose. Maybe I I don't know Flaubert at all. I've never read Madame Bovary. I don't know much about him as a person. But it, I I can imagine there's there's a possibility that this is about um, unearthing kind of the hypocrisy about the way that we talk about war and glorify war. Because um, 
Uh, yeah, war is always horrific. War mm. is full of constant horror and death and atrocities. And it's it's a huge display of the horrific things human beings are capable of doing to other human beings. Mm-hmm. And that's on display here. And frequently that's not on display right. when we're reading war stories. Mm-hmm. I think uh, a couple other things that um, are maybe not centered and maybe not uh, – but – Again, we know that Spendius was a slave, right? And but mm-hmm. he does has no compunction about being a slave or himself. He literally one of the first things he does when he's you know the mercenaries are you know paid, sort of semi paid off is he goes buys himself a slave, right? And then we find out that he was yeah. a former pimp and all this stuff. But um, when again that sort of when has has returns and he's inventorying his estates and going through everything, he's nominally the most noble, the best that Carthage has to offer, right? But then you know when he's enraged and he threatens the slaves and says, oh, you know, send them off to the salt mines or this, that, and the other thing. So you can sort of see like where Spendius is coming from, right? Like, you know, he's just like wants to burn the whole world down, right? <laughs> In a way. <laughs> um, so that's that horror too. Like, even though it's never really told from the standpoint of like a real groundling, uh, uh, the horrors of the slavery, this, um, this uh, unthinking assumptions that people have to the various cults that, I mean, this, these are, great old ones right like the the there's a word in here for um one word i underline which means basically chthonic gods you know like the sort of the pre uh, uh, yeah. you know the underground um uh, but it's a term that they use in there so that these are like interesting weird cults right so we could use that as a yeah. depiction without offending anyone i don't think there's any current moloch worshipers out there that we have to worry about you never <laughs> know you never or, know or, you know someone will write and like, say you know oh, these guys are discriminating against you know our, our belief in tenet <laughs> but there's but there's no honor either is there amongst the yeah. nobility or whatever because right. i think hamilcar at one point says hey you guys throw your swords down you'll be fine and then they right. start nailing them to things or cutting bits off or whatever yeah yeah you know, right. there, I kept no on saying Hasdrubal, oh. Hamilcar is who I meant, yeah. But Hasdrubal was Ham, ha, uh, Hannibal's brother. I kept on saying, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that yeah. really confused me. Was, was Hannibal yeah. his son? I, I wasn't sure historically if that was Yeah, the Hannibal case, is, is Hamilcar's son. Right. Although there's been multiple Hannibals. So right, right. Hannibal, I think the Hannibal that we know is the famous one is like Hannibal the Third or something like that. Uh, so that's, right. that's, yeah, so, there was that yeah. one in the A team as well, wasn't there? Or something yeah, that, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah there, there was, and there was that fancy cannibal one too. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> There's your link between the horror. There you, see? Yeah. There you go. Then, then, then there was the really funny one who does things with Eric Andre. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so my bad. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the. The cults, I think the, the again, it's too much. But again, if you put it into a, a generator, so you could like throw three details, like every time they penetrate the very sanctums of the various gods and like they have, there's so much like, the, it's mystery cults, right? Like, um, and that's how people used to experience religion. It's not a rational thing, right? These are just things that are there. We don't say, oh, this means this, this means this. It might've meant something at one point, but it's been obscured by so many layers of, of you know, of, um unthinking devotion over the centuries that it has no meaning to the common worshiper anymore. And so I think that's kind of cool. We just described this temple. We don't know what this font does or what this thing does. Mm. Um, you know, um, like when he steals Tanit's uh, uh, veil. Um, and, and to give this thing just a name that like, uh, was it the Zainth? Is the, the that Zainth, what the, the veil? The yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Zainth. And just like, we just refer to it as the Zainth and like, what is that? It's like, well, everyone knows it's a Zionist. Right? <laughs> but, you know. 
I, I did read a sort of review of this that said something like, if you have a detailed knowledge of the history and the background, you'll enjoy it more, which I guess speaks to the amount of uh, research that he did. And he, he's sort of dropping these things, perhaps almost assuming that you know about this stuff. Of course, of course, you don't, don't you know who Baal is? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so he, he doesn't, he never really explains any of it, does he? Yeah. I mean, certainly not with the names of the people. Maybe that's assumption that, like, maybe our our current education system is not sort of geared to that the way that someone at his level of education in you know mid nineteenth century would. But I like the descriptions of all like the the plants, the herbs, the incense. Um, again, because not necessarily that you would pick up, but if you've ever been to like a, a, a Middle Eastern market or a Southeast Asian market or any of this sort of open air markets, and you're just getting overwhelmed by all sorts of different smells and senses, and you, you might be able to pick out one or two. And I think he does it verbally in the way that we would have that experience of uh, olfactory uh, yeah. experience yeah. in a real. Yeah. Um, eh. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that's what drew me to um, to Howard and uh, what, what got me thinking about Howard and Liber is that they also both do a great job of doing that, but much more succinctly. Sure. It's not a whole novel of that. It would be interesting to find out. Uh, I mean, I think part of this is, the na- I mean, Flaubert's specific style. I think it's also the nature of the French language. And then this is obviously in translation, but I've noticed that from my, my little knowledge of French, it's really interesting. A lot of times you have to read the whole paragraph to understand what the paragraph means instead of like, an, you know, right, or the whole right. sentence. You don't understand the sentence until you finish reading the sentence. Whereas in English, I feel like a lot of times, at least as a native English speaker, okay, I can sort of like piece out the meaning as I'm reading along, right? And, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, we're getting a little closer to the end. Do you have any last thoughts there, Rob, about this book? And uh, what do you think? Is it something you would recommend or other I, ideas? I don't, know if I, I don't know if I'd recommend it. I, I think like Jeff, I didn't particularly enjoy it. I enjoy it. It didn't really engage me as such. It was interesting. Um, and certainly lots of, as we've said, very vivid descriptions. Um but I, I, I wouldn't read it again. I don't know if I'd watch a film or go and see the opera or anything like that. It didn't really leave me with anything apart from feeling sorry for lots of elephants and lions and people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just a very sad reminder of how many mammals and trails have been pulled out because of humans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how about you, Jeff? Any other last thoughts on there? Um, not particularly. Yeah. I, I, I didn't need to read this book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't really feel like you, the listener need to either. I would say I'm glad I read this book, but I think it's one that, um, having everyone having heard this can make your own mind. And if you, if any of the things that strike you as, uh, that's not for me, then don't, because it's, there's other, you know, there's only so much time in our lives to read this book, but I do think it's a really interesting I was not expecting again the level of uh, violence, cynicism, exoticism, all the stuff layered on. Maybe it's too much, but I think it's it's its own thing. I don't know that I would revisit it in any time in the near future, but if I felt like I had more understanding and background of this era as a whole, or maybe even not if this era, but of, of the the period in France that was producing this kind of stuff, then I might revisit it and say, "Oh, okay, this is a fine example of French decadence of the you know mid nineteenth century," and, and <laughs> now I get it. Um, uh, but, um, but the, I still love that chapel with a uh, chapter with Hamilcar's, uh, return. And I think that's an, an immense, tremendous, if you ever want to describe like the most unearthly hoard, treasure hoard, that would be a, a place you could start. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, Rob, do you have any uh, projects or anything like that coming up that you want people to know about before we get out of here? Yeah, we've got a few things going on. As we record at the moment, in just under a week's time, we've got the Innsmouth Literary Festival, which we've organised, which is a one-day event. We've uh, we've got Ramsey Campbell. We've got other authors in attendance. We've got gaming and panels and all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, so it. that's been uh, that's been quite a thing. It's a bit like organising a wedding, <laughs> you know. But we're we're really looking forward to that. Um, Innsmouth Gold, the latest book we published is called The Pickman Papers, which is a collection of thirteen Lovecraftian stories in a Dickensian setting. We had a lot of fun with that. That's thirteen different authors contributed to that. Uh, as you mentioned, I've got uh, Dragon's Teeth, my new YouTube gaming channel, just come up. And I've also just started work. I mentioned research on the Romans. I'm looking at doing uh, a novella or maybe two or three as a sequel to Robert E. Howard's Worms of the Earth set in uh, Roman Britain. So that's uh, that's what's going on at the moment. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm so, also working on a set of fantasy skirmish rules as well. So there you go. <laughs> so we can have those. We can have those battles outside of Carthage and cutting the aqueduct. Absolutely, absolutely. No elephants will be harmed in the making of these rules. There you go. All <laughs> right. So for all of this, go to insmithgold.com and you'll be able to find all of this. Right. That's the place. Yeah. Thank you. Perfect. Terrific. All right, Jeff. Do you have any uh, announcements on our RN here? Um, I yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to our newest patron, Maboostcat, uh, Maboostcast. I apologize, my boost cast. And I'd also like to give a shout out to a handful of our other patrons. I'll reach in the hat here and pull out some names. Uh, thank you to Adam Styers, Sam Watson, Gabriel Laycock, Lapis Dust, Andy Action, Dan Alexander, Robert Coleman, Joseph, and Dave Hotstream. We appreciate your support. Thank you. And um, yeah, that is my Patreon announcements for now. Um, and quick reminder, I had mentioned on the last episode that I will be departing from this show, but I still have two episodes left with you all. And after that, um, it's still TBD with what will be happening after that. But um, that is where we are presently at with that. Right. We'll also have some sort of forum. But if you have ideas about how, um, you know, what shape we went, what you might want the show to take on the future, then be sure to let us know. You can do that through our Patreon or on our social at Appendix N. Under, appendix underscore and n and twitter uh not x twitter until it burns down <laughs> or you can email us at appendix and book club at gmail.com all right Perfect. uh that's it rob it's an honor and pleasure to have you on here as always we love all our guests uh, especially our most recent one as always uh like yeah, I, it, so I've, 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 you know you're one of my favorite podcasts and i'm sure whatever direction you take in the future it's going to be interesting and entertaining so yeah and we're a big fan of your shows we've been on we've been on a few in the past so it's fun to have you on ours thank you <laughs> yeah, yeah. long might continue there we go <laughs> all right everybody see you in the stacks read on the library is closed